0: Bilal Mack is a Brooklyn-based visual effects supervisor, director, and the host of the Legends of VFX podcast. Uh, He's uh, worked on commercials in TV and film, Adidas, Google, BMW, stars, HBO, Focus Features, worked with directors such as Dave Myers and the Russo Brothers, currently works for Alchemy X. In this episode, we're talking about his fast climb from flame artist to visual effects supervisor, the value of becoming the go-to guy for his creative partners, and his passion for socially diverse storytelling, and his mission to help authentic voices reach a broad audience. This episode was also recorded in video, so you can check it out on postpostpodcast.com. And without further ado, I give you episode 31 of the Postpost Post Podcast. and hey Bilali how's it going
1: how's it going hey thanks for having me dude
0: sure thing and uh, I can't um, not notice the red coca-cola behind you just kidding (laughs) I hope (laughs) it's not uh, a (laughs) <laughs>
1: it's pretty bright. I just move my head in front of it. Just
0: <laughs> no, no. Actually, uh, it's, it's not that bad. And uh, is there a reason why uh, there's a coca big Coca-Cola? Uh, are you well, sponsored by Coca-Cola? I know
1: you I'm have definitely not sponsored by Coca-Cola, <laughs> but it looks like it right now. Um, funny story. I moved. Also, my dog is on the couch. I don't know. If oh,
0: knows. I didn't notice him. What's yeah, his name?
1: He's Been sleeping the whole time. He's listening. So <laughs> that's cool um but uh yeah the coca-cola i actually just moved into this apartment recently and this coca-cola sign was in the basement Hmm. uh our super our landlord just left it in there so we just brought it up and i just thought it would be cool to just leave it in the office yeah it's pretty cool that's the story of the coca-cola sign
0: (laughs) (laughs) so uh it must have some ancient history that you're not even aware of
1: yeah i'm not it could be cursed
0: maybe Who knows?
1: Let's hope that's not true.
0: Let's hope uh, the interest, the the history that you uh, bestow upon it is more interesting than the history that is (laughs) uh, that it carries with it. Um, (laughs) So, um, and you're in Brooklyn, right?
1: Yeah. So I'm in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York. So I'm based out of Brooklyn. Uh, Visual effects company I work for right now is called Alchemy X. They're in Manhattan, but with COVID and everything, everyone's working remotely right now. So
0: got it. So you're a vendor side visual effects supervisor. uh, And uh, here I see your your dog just uh, heard we're talking about him. So he got up. Uh, (laughs) Cute.
1: Yep. I'm a vendor side visual effects supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: Uh, um, so for for people who don't know, I mean, I'll I'll just, uh, I'll just kind of quickly say as far as I understand it a visual, vendor vendor side visual effects supervisor as opposed to a client-side visual effects supervisor is a is a person that is in charge of uh, the work inside the studio he interfaces with a client but he's uh, kind of he's at the service of the studio he protects the interests of the studio that is actually going to create a visual effects even though everybody's at the service of the story at the end of the day and you know everybody wants to uh, to get the best uh, job possible um, but um, before going into what you're doing now, I'm kind of curious, uh, A, are, are you originally from New York and how did you get into uh, visual effects?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm not originally from New York. I'm not, I'm not actually originally from the United States. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I was born in Ghana in West Africa, uh, uh, moved to, from Ghana to Windsor, Connecticut, uh, uh, early 90s. Or no no actually late 90s is when we moved to uh connecticut Uh, from there i went to boston and for university i went to emerson college for computer animation uh, and motion media and from there to new york so kind of my journey has been like ghana to connecticut connecticut to boston boston new york and that's where i'm at now
0: and uh you so did you, when you went to school in, uh, in, uh, Boston, did you, uh, already know that this is what you want to do with your, you know, in, in, in your life, like to do digital. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I've, I've always been into filmmaking and storytelling and I loved watching old like Disney movies, you know, like any kid growing up. And I, um, I was really into uh, like Walt Disney was like one of the guys I kind of looked up to. Mm -hmm. Um, I got really into computer animation uh, and I took a bunch of filmmaking classes when I was in high school. Uh, I took like a TV production class and then I did this like half day arts program where I was doing filmmaking classes there as well. Um, And so I kind of felt like I wanted to get into filmmaking actually originally. Mm Uh, I went to university, and when I applied, the filmmaking program at Emerson College was, like, really full. So they had moved me into – they they had moved me or accidentally put me into the computer animation department. Um,
0: Accidentally?
1: Yeah. Well, not accident, but because there wasn't enough space Mm. is what my guess was. Or that's what they told me, um, even though I selected film production. And so – I kind of just was like waiting for them to, um, I think after like six months or so you could reapply or move change majors. Right. So I had to, I had to change majors to get into a different kind of like department. Um, but I did the computer animation course for like six months and I actually really enjoyed it. And I was like, Oh man, this is cool. All my friends are actually having to go on set and like rent camera equipment and like carry stuff. And I was just like playing on a computer basically the whole time. Um, (laughs) And so I was like, man, if I could just get really good at making my own films in these computers, I won't have to like worry about any of this other real life practical issues that my filmmaking friends were running into.
0: That's funny. Um, That's kind of how I, that's, that's kind of my story as well when I was young. Cause I, I, I started when I was like, you know maybe 14 but i didn't for some reason my my mom was like not into getting me a video camera or she didn't see the point in that she always wanted yeah. me to get a real job um <laughs> and uh and that was kind of my i didn't have a camera but i had a computer and i was like well i can make movies using the computer then uh, yeah
1: so that was that was my that was my whole idea as well and so <laughs> from that i decided i would um just stick it out and see how it played out and i stayed stayed that whole track for the entire program, graduated with a BFA. Uh, I did like a thesis animation, like 3D animation at the end of it. And then from there I started uh, at a place in Boston called Brickyard VFX, which is a commercial visual effects studio in Boston. Uh, worked there for like six months and then applied for a job at a visual effects studio in New York called Smoke and Mirrors. Yeah. And that's kind of where I started in the tape room you know, helping deliver commercials for clients and working at the studio.
0: What does that mean to to start at the tape room? Is it? uh... So
1: yeah, so the tape room, uh, or a lot of people call it MCR, machine room operator Mm -hmm. or machine room, uh, uh, yeah, MCR, a machine room operator. And and so basically what that entailed was, uh, I was basically ingesting footage, ingesting tapes, um, dropping them onto the server, encoding deliver- deliverables for clients and postings, and also checking and QCing footage. I see. Um, we kind of, when I first started, there were, there weren't that many people at the company. So we were also doing things like setting up software mm. for the artists. We became kind of like I don't know, IT-ish, right, yeah. like pipeline-ish because mm-hmm. we were like the young, everybody else at the studio was much, was older. They were older artists that were used to just, you know, like not doing any of that kind of like uploading, right, and yeah. downloading software. So we were the young guys and they'd be like, Oh, can you guys figure out how to upload this new plugin on the server for us? So we were figuring out how to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so I did that for like a year and a half. Was that,
0: was that in 2012 or so, or?
1: That was, yeah, that was like
0: 2013.
1: 2013, got it. Yep. Okay, cool. that was like 2013. Um, and did that for like a year and a half, got promoted to uh, flame, like junior flame artists. Uh, so at the time I was still helping doing like rotoscoping and doing like paint work. Uh, on the Flame, which was, which still is, uh, like advanced compositing and visual effects software.
0: Yeah, Flame uh, is like a. I mean, it's it's sort of like the the Rolls Royce of like uh, 3D uh, softwares in a way. Yeah, visual software, effects software. Yeah. Uh, it
1: kind of still is. I mean, I, I hope. I'm my hope, I, I've I've been working with Autodesk now for. Better part of this last year. Autodesk
0: is the creator of Flame.
1: Yeah, the create. They also create. They also create Maya,
0: right, and, and, and Max, Max,
1: like all those other programs. Mm-hmm. But Flame is part of their media and entertainment suite, right? What they call. It. Um, but yeah, Flame was what I got started on. Flame is kind of like that, like yeah, the Rolls Royce of visual effects commercial software. Uh, people don't usually use it as much for film and TV. You usually use like Nuke for film and TV work but I got into commercials. So I was learning how to roto and track and paint and do kind of all that support visual effects work in Flame. After a few years, after a year or so doing that, I moved from junior Flame artist to Flame artist, um, started leading projects. Um, I went on set, shadowed on set a couple times with our senior visual effects supervisor there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then applied for a job at MPC in New York Got that job, uh, and I became a flame artist uh, slash on set supervisor there. Got um, it. Yeah, and so I worked at and I worked at MPC for three years, um, working on really awesome commercials, working with really talented visual effects artists and visual effects supervisors. That's really where I like came into my own as like an artist. I would say.
0: So M- MPC is short for Motion Pixel Company, right? and uh, motion picture company. motion picture yeah. company or no sorry
1: moving picture company. Moving, moving picture, picture company. company sorry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so i worked in the commercial department the feature film department in london uh and la they're the ones that do like lion king right jungle book they do the big visual effects feature films that you've so
0: there, before that i'm kind of curious so this this uh it to me it seems like it happened very quickly like a year I mean, a year from junior to uh, flame uh, f- 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 to flame artist and then yeah. and then starting to supervise very shortly after that, uh, shortly after that. <laughs> yeah how do you explain like first of all what is the what is the average time that it usually takes do you know or is it just you know does it just to sound move from
1: to move from uh, suit like you would say to move from artist to supervisor or
0: I guess I mean I honestly you know I guess both like from from junior to yeah. to artist and then from and then from I mean, artist to supervisor sometimes I
1: think I think I'll put it this way I think I was really lucky that generally you probably wouldn't move that quickly um with opportunities like that but I was really lucky I think I, I probably honestly wouldn't have become a VFX supervisor until like I don't know like maybe three years from now where I'm at right now, even. Right. Uh, I was lucky in, in the first, my almost all of my jobs that like, they were small enough studios that had enough work that they were just like, just give him a shot kind of thing. Yeah. You know, uh, especially at Smoke and Mirrors, the first place I started at, I moved from working in the machine room to a full-on visual effects artist that was like, they would give a a full commercial project to work on near the end Um, because we halfway through, actually, we lost one of my, our visual effects, our flame artists and it's hard to find good visual effects, flame artists to lead projects and that are good with clients. And one of the things that is very valuable is if you're really good with clients and I was really good with clients. Um, early on, and so so what is
0: it what does it mean to be good with clients? I'm curious if, for you. Yeah, like what so is... like,
1: so being good with clients in visual effects for commercials is basically if you're the flame artist, you manage kind of like the creative and the relationship with the uh, well, not really the production company. Most of the time, the agency, the advertising mm-hmm. agency. So the client will come to us with a commercial or a, a storyboard. And I, I shadowed our senior visual effects supervisor for, I don't know, maybe like a year, a year and a half doing this. Um, and he was really, and this was part of my, I think the reason I was able to move so quickly was that I had artists that took me on as mentors and not just in a kind of like passive way, like actively mentoring me, like come in here, watch while I do this, be on the call while I'm doing this. Um, And I benefited from that greatly because I really wanted to be a really good visual effects artist. And I thought it was cool. I love the idea of like working with clients and having a client ask me my opinion on like, whether this is a cool thing to do or whether it would make their shot look better or make their commercial look better. And so I put in a lot of time um, shadowing and going into like my, my senior's setups at night after he would leave, finishing work, I would go into his computer and I would look at how he did things. And then the next morning, ask him how he did it. And then I, that's how I kind of like slowly learned how to do those kind of things. Yeah. I quickly became really fast at doing it because I was basically just copying what he was doing and replicating it and um, teaching myself. I really, in the first three years, also one of the big uh, stopping points for people, junior artists, at that time anyways was flame at the time cost somewhere between like I don't know two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars to get a setup. Right. And, and we that's had, we had six flames at our office and two flame artists.
0: Yeah, I w I wanna reiterate that. You said two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars
1: yes, for a yeah. for
0: one flame setup.
1: One flame setup That's
0: why that's why it's the Rolls Royce of of vfx <laughs> software so the people who are completely unrelated to visual effects if any of you are, are listening or watching yeah. normally it's you know an expensive uh, license is like you know five thousand dollars now it's even yeah. now you can get it like uh on a monthly basis which is which makes it mm-hmm. much uh, much cheaper
1: now flame is actually even cheap is so cheap now you can get a monthly license i think it's 500 dollars a month for flame got it, got it and and they allow you to have it on max but in 2013 oh. You couldn't have flame on a mac it had to be a certified hp machine with uh, specific hardware so you had to buy like five thousand dollar uh graphic gpus multiple of them i think our setups had like two or three got it like uh nvidia uh, gpus um mm-hmm. and the p the p versions the p six thousands or whatever not the right game graphics cards crazy <laughs> um,
0: which are crazy yeah, expensive to, yeah
1: yeah, crazy expensive, and we had like four. We would have like four or five terabytes. No, I think my first machine had sixteen terabytes of SSD RAID storage in it. Wow. Um, so the <laughs> and, machine, yeah, go for. And
0: it. the question, I guess, people will ask: Well, why not just get Maya or 3 Studio Max, like, or or I mean, or uh, After Nuke Effects or Nuke, right? I mean, the the yeah. compositing softwares. Why uh, Why pay two hundred? Like, what What about it justifies this? Uh, this cost, this uh, price tag?
1: I mean, I think part of it is the nature of the industry and just the nature of how the commercial advertising industry was formed. Like flame came into commercial advertising, when it was kind of the only thing that you could do or work on, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the history of flame and commercial advertising. It's kind of like this shrouded magical, expensive Rolls Royce software, because when commercial advertising was big, like in the nineties in New York city, you, you couldn't do the things that you could do now. And like nuke and stuff on any other software, except for flame. Right. That was what studios and visual effects studios and edit houses were using to finish their entire commercials. Um, it was the last stop and it was used initially as like a finishing package. So Mm -hmm. all, all of the other, software this is this is when people talk about this is a distinction in commercial where people say online and offline so offline edit when you're doing the editorial you take the high-res footage and you you convert it so it's like a low-res file or low-res images that you can edit in a smaller computer um, or on a smaller machine and do all of your editorial work before you get to the online part, which is basically you up-res or you relink back to the high-res footage that you're gonna do the final finishing and grading on before you deliver the commercial, right? And Flame at the time was a visual effects software that you could do online work with, right? So you could do semi, it's not real time, but it was really fast online visual effects work and you've been able to do that on flame since like the late 90s you know there was no hiccups the scrubbing part of that was because of the massive amount of storage it had 16 terabytes and it would pre-cache all the image sequences that went into the software so it had built a pipeline and infrastructure that allowed the software to move much faster than anything else and when you're doing client sessions For $2 million Super Bowl commercials and they need the commercial out in 30 minutes, you don't want to be sitting there pressing the render button and waiting for that thing to load. Right, Uh, for sure. So, yeah, and at the time when people were using the software, it was worth it because people were billing like $10 million a year in commercials. So having one package that you're going to use for multiple years, that's only $200,000, $300,000 is worth it but the industry has shifted greatly from where it was right
0: yeah and i'm very curious because i've i've been in the in the industry since then i mean since not the 90s but you know the, the early 2000s but i've never actually had my put my hands on a flame uh flame computer uh because i mean partially because i wasn't really in uh very deep into commercials at any point uh but um but I've always found it, you know, curious and fascinating. Why is it so expensive? And and uh, what do people, uh, you know, what justifies this, this price tag? And I think that the uh, one thing that you mentioned there was client, uh, client facing. review, client facing, the
1: client facing work. Yeah.
0: So that's the, that's a reason why it's important for it to be very responsive and uh and without a lot of uh render time and and a lot of waiting yeah. because you have client in in the room you don't want to waste their time you, you want them to feel like yeah. their notes are being addressed you know quickly uh, you want them to see what their notes because traditionally you know people know that compositing normal compositing and visual effects work takes time so you given you give us notes we go away and we come back two days later with uh, yeah. with updates. But what yeah. you're talking about, which is online, which means it's like the finishing right the the last stretch of the commercial. Sometimes, you know, you're pressed against a deadline and you really have to leave that room with the finished commercial that day you can't you can't wait for you know for a twelve yeah. hour render. Well
1: in commercial world too, if you miss your deadline, you're costing the client. So if they miss their air date. Let's say you have a commercial that has to go for the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and it needs to be at the distributors or the um, the person that's the studio that's the network that's going to be distributing it. It has to be there by like twelve p.m. You know tomorrow. Yeah. If you miss that time, they'll either sell your slot to another person or another commercial, yeah. or you get fined like severely. It could be it, sometimes mm-hmm. you could. Fines of hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars for missing an air date wow. because they'll just be like you lost your spot and we didn't have it enough time to air the super bowl commercial because there's a whole process for commercials for it to air on tv they have to be qc'd by a company like extreme reach and then that has to go to the network and then the network QC's it before they air it and they want to make sure that there's no mistakes or there are all these specs and things it's like delivering a dcp for a film basically but like all the so
0: time. so that must be a pretty stressful situation to be sitting in a room knowing that, you know, there's a hard deadline, your client has notes. Yeah. If you're not going to be able to address for those time. notes in time, I mean, of course, the client is not going to leave without a commercial if they know there's a deadline. But uh, yeah,
1: but you get in trouble for missing an air date. I know people that have been fired for uh, missing air dates on delivery. So that's there is an element of stress in it. And that's why. It's like live visual effects. And that's kind of where I came up in in the visual effects world is like doing client facing visual effects. So like imagine like instead of getting a note from your supervisor and they walk away and they're like, can you do this, hit these notes? The client's sitting behind you. They're like drinking coffee and eating sushi. And they're like, yeah, we want the guy's arm to be bigger. And you gotta be able to do it there Mm -hmm. in front of them while they're watching. Wow. Uh, and the funny, I mean, you learn all the ways to try to. And, and that the great thing for me is like you learn all of these skills in communicating and customer service and, you know, and kissing up and all these kind of like ways of managing. And a lot of the times in the visual effects commercial where you call it uh, running the room, mm-hmm. right? As the lead visual effects artists during a client session. You're running the room, right? You're you're making sure that the client's happy. You're also at the same time emailing with your producer, trying to make sure you're getting assets from. It's very, very stressful. You're like the orchestrator, and at the same time, working on the shot. Right. So that was part of the reason why flame artists were so coveted, because it was like it was like high stress Olympic visual effects, basically. Yeah. Um, I joke with some of my like artists now that. You know, they've always done like TV and episodic stuff like this is so less stressful. I feel like, you know, my heart rate now from when I was doing a lot of commercial VFX has gone way down. Like if I'm looking at my Fitbit watch, you know, it's like my my heart rate is just not is just so much easier having longer deadlines. You know, I used to finish commercials in like a full on commercial. I used to do a bunch of commercials where the client would give us a brief they would shoot it in like a day or a half and it would need to be delivered in like three days.
0: Wow.
1: For a full on commercial, 30 second commercial. And that included doing the color and that included doing all of the visual effects for it, putting the graphics on it and getting it to the uh, extreme reach or whatever it needs to be go go to be distributed. So there were times where it was like really, really stressful, but I think the people that manage that well and come out of it, They're kind of like a different breed of visual effects, you know, because I I became really good at, especially at a place like NBC, I became really good at making sure that I was outputting quality visual effects, but as efficiently as possible. You know, any clever, interesting way I could figure out how to save time without sacrificing quality, I took it and I, I taught myself how to composite in that way for a long time. There's some things I had to unlearn as I moved into TV and film because the pipeline and the workflow is so completely different and it's so much longer. And it's like, you know, it's not as you don't have to you don't have to do things that are a little bit more destructive, you know, in flame. Yeah. When I was doing things, a client would ask me to accomplish something. My goal was more a one off solution. I was like, I need to get this done in 10 minutes. They're never going back to it. And how can I make this butterfly turn into a car in 10 minutes
2: mm-hmm.
1: without, you know, like, without having to go into CG and render this thing out, you know? Yeah. Where now in TV and film, I'd more be like, oh, somebody else is going to have to pick up this butterfly, turning into a dragon. I need to do it in a procedural way where we can adjust it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated because, first of all, you and, and you know, going into, I can imagine myself... Doing, you know, taking what I know now, which is, you know, years of experience in visual effects and translating it into being on a, you know, on a flame on a flame station with a client right behind my back and having the confidence to say, you know, this is how I'm going to attack this. I know this is going to work. This is not going to work. Because after yeah. years of years of experience, you kind of, you, you, you develop this instinct of like, you know, what's the fastest way to get to that result and visual effects. The thing about visual effects is that every project, you know, introduces new challenges that you might've not uh, faced before. And and it, it takes a little bit of uh, of experience to kind of, um, even just managed to manage your, your, your pre knowledge, you know, your knowledge and, and uh, figure yeah. out. It sounds to me like you've been sort of thrown into the, the deep water, the deep oh, end yeah. of the pool very was, quickly. Like
1: every, that has been kind of like my whole career has been just being thrown into the deep end of the ocean and try and trying to survive. Um, and luckily a- I have survived and I've actually done very well, but it, it has so, been I almost wish I could have padded a couple of years in between sometimes just so I wouldn't be as stressed. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm good at what I do now and my strengths come from that experience and story. And so maybe if I did go a different route, maybe I wouldn't be as efficient as a as an artist. I don't know, you know. I just know that I am yeah. the type of artist I am now because of that experience and that route I took. Um and you know, I see the benefits of it, and I also see the negative parts of it as well. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, from my experience, I think my ability to work with clients, I can attribute it to the fact that I, um, that my uh, my my uh, job trajectory and my experience is similar to my clients because I went to film school and because I've I've directed and and uh, and worked on multiple film sets. Uh, not as a visual effects artist, as as a filmmaker, you know. And so I, I know I can speak their language. I understand their uh, their priorities. I can um, I can uh, soothe them if necessary, or like you know, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of uh ease their worries. yeah ease their worries and and um, basically kind of put a smiley face on the visual effects side of things, which people a lot of people find intimidating just because they don't know much about it. Um, and I can translate it into. Uh, terms that they are familiar with and also show them that it's really a lot of fun once you get a hang of it and and you know you you don't really need to think too much out of the you know you don't need to leave your comfort zone that much to really start to understand what visual effects are what they what you can use them for uh, and how to adjust your mind frame but from from my own experience and I've had that in the past where I had clients sitting behind me of course I wasn't sitting on i wasn't using flame i was using whatever after effects or uh or whatever software
1: I think you would like playing this fast, man. It's like, it's fun. It's like you jump in the Lamborghini. It's like, boom. you're like, oh, snap, it's going.
0: That might be the reason. I mean, I, I've, I always had this thing where it's like, I'm, I have someone sitting next to me and they give me notes and I just want like, you know, get out of the room, please. Like just come back in, in a day, tell me what you want and I'll do it. I've had that, you know, experience. I've never said that to the person next to me, but, I've, yeah, course, but I've had yeah. that experience where it's like, okay, I've heard what you're, I've heard your note. Know, let me get, go to it and, I, and I'll get back to you in about 15 minutes. Go grab a, a bite, you know, take a sandwich or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> and do something else. Um, and that, that interaction, I mean, it takes a lot of, out of you just the, you know, it's being, draining, yeah. being uh, you know, being polite. And, and you're the
1: guy, but you're also the guy when you're in that seat, you know, when yeah. you're managing the job, when you're managing a project, when you're the direct client facing person. It doesn't matter if it's Flame or After Effects or whatever. You're the guy, you're the person with the responsibility. Yeah, And I think that it does two things. It makes you become much more mature, I think, as an artist in learning how to coordinate and work with, you know, your clients and be professional and, you know, hit your goals as uh, the goals for the, the job. Um, and it doesn't sound as sexy, but it's very important because you learn, a lot of leadership skills um, as an artist that is doing things client-facing because there's a lot of responsibility there. And it, and if you want to succeed, you have to be able to get the job done in time, make the client happy, and make your company some money at the same time. And that's that all is part of the responsibility of like a lead artist, in my mind anyway, or a supervisor. Um, and not everybody wants that kind of responsibility. I've known artists that are – freaking incredible artists and I've just been like man like I really would love for this person to become a supervisor just so that they could help other artists creatively but they just don't want that they don't want that responsibility and that stress because some people just want to be pure artists and there's nothing against that but the the reason a lot of times people wanted to become flame artists also flame artists got paid a lot more I knew flame artists that like back in early 2000s, there may be a few left now. I don't think there are very many that were making, you know, 200 plus $300,000 a year as a visual effects artist. Wow. Yeah, But that came with the responsibility of being the client facing person. Um, and if you got really good at your job, clients would come back for you. And that's mm-hmm. what your value becomes as an artist, especially for your studio if people start coming back, that's why I got to the point where I started having art clients come back to me and say, or come back to the studio and say, oh, like we want to work with Bilali on this job.
0: Yeah. they
1: will bring a whole job to the companies, 500,000 to a million dollar job just to work with one person. That's when you start having that leverage and value as a visual effects artist in the commercial space or any job. I think, you know, once you become so good at your job, you're the clients are asking for you personally, that was the allure, I think, of flame artists. You know, you become really, really good and really good intimate with your clients and they love the work and you guys have a rapport. They'll ask for you. That's when you start being able to, you know, eventually start your own studio if you want.
0: Yeah. Um, And I know, you might know, do you know Vico Sarabani?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Vico. I almost worked for Vico once. He almost... um, (laughs) Yeah, I really? was like when I was actually getting ready to leave. I it was the year before I left to go to MPC. I was checking out places. Vico interviewed me, and for the artery, for the artery, artery yeah, yeah. He interviewed me. That was early on, I think earlier, not early on, but earlier. Um, and he offered me a position. I just I I didn't take it. I don't. I I, I thought about it, but it was just different timing. Yeah, they're, they're great though. They're awesome. That the work that he's doing. That guy is. A He's a, he's a killer, he's great. Yeah,
0: I'm very curious because I've, I've heard him talk to Alan McKay actually about his uh, his history. I know him personally as well. Yeah, he's um, straight up flame artist, yeah. Yeah, and his story was very, I mean, he really owes his career to being one of the first people in Israel who who sat on a flame station. I think he might've been the first one. Uh, I mean, of course he's super talented and he took this opportunity oh, yeah. and like flew with it, right? uh not everybody would be able to do that but uh the fact that he was there at that time uh really kind of uh singled him out and kind of jump started his whole career yeah. uh he has a lot of gratitude towards flame i think they probably still yeah i know they they're definitely using flame i just had i just did a project with them actually uh oh, nice. yeah just a few a few weeks ago i actually i VFX supervised on set here in LA for them uh partially because I had a, there's a, a part of this project that I had to, that I, I took the responsibility to do something with, with deep fakes. Um, oh, cool. nice. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I, we've been, I think it's probably the first, one of the first times we worked together. We've been, uh, we've been dying to work together for a long time. And, uh, it was, That's it's awesome, finally, man. finally happened. It was great. Yeah. And, um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's funny that you, uh, that, that you guys were in touch about working together. But I think yeah. it's, I'm very curious because it's like, now what you're saying uh, one brings me to the next uh, subject I wanted to talk to you about, which is the transition. So you've, um, I don't know how recently, but a while ago, you, you moved from doing commercials, which you mentioned, which, which is yeah. very. So
1: I, moved, I moved into film and TV a year ago. A year ago. To the day. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, Congrats. Yeah. On, Thanks, your, on your on uh, your
0: anniversary of that motion, so I'm curious about how how you did that transition and how what kind of change it in, it introduced. And specifically, you've mentioned in terms of you know being a uh, being in, in commercials. I'll give you my assumption, and then you can kind of debunk it completely or or uh, or, uh, yeah, or add true. to it. Um, commercials is a smaller operation, shorter turnaround, very uh, like human-centric, Well, you mentioned commercials want to work with Bilali on this project. Uh, I mean, com- clients in the commercial uh, field want to work with you. I would imagine that uh, long-form you know, TV or, or feature films uh, are less um, less so in terms of like, you know, we want to work with Bilali. Or even if they are, even if they want to work with you, they want to work with you as a supervisor, which means you'll be with them on set and, you know, maybe you mm-hmm. walk them through... Um, Welcome through the, uh, the project as a whole, but you're not gonna be sitting on a Flame uh, station for the most of it. I don't know if you even use Flame at all for, for these long, you know, longer form uh, I projects. I use
1: it every once in a while. I use, um, I jump between both. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I'll jump into Flame, but I use Flame and Nuke, um, more Nuke now than ever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, at MPC, we use Flame and Nuke interchangeably yeah compositing um flame generally lead, led the projects um uh, and now i kind of use nuke i uh, use nuke for all of like the shot work that we do and every once in a while i'll jump into flame if i want to do like some look dev or if there's something i kind of want to play with right um just because it's what i started out in, but i generally use almost all nuke um, and what was great about MPC is that yeah they kind of made sure that we were uh, software Ambidextrous because mm. they knew that you know nuke was very affordable and as far as talent wise in the city, it was becoming harder and harder to find you know young, affordable flame junior flame artists, right you know um, But yeah, the transition, <clears throat> I would say, yeah, what what I will say is as far as the the length of time that jobs lasted, definitely much shorter timelines for commercials. Um, The size of the projects, I think it ranged, you know, if we had like a really big commercial, we could hire, you know, if it's like a Super Bowl commercial, Mm -hmm. big one with lots of big visual effects shots, we could end up with a team the size of like 20, 25
2: people for
1: a big Super Bowl commercial. You know, you see some of these big PlayStation commercials with like massive scale visual effects, you Mm -hmm. know, like big environments, creatures and characters, those kinds of things you need a really big teams for that. Yeah. Um, uh, it's been and a lot of heavy CG. I will say, actually, I feel like I'm doing less CG right now than I was actually when I was at MPC doing commercials, just because a lot of the episodic work we do is mostly kind of like 2d hmm. um visual effects, you know, a lot of, Uh, The the, one of the series that I'm supervising right now is uh, it's called Go. Well, it was called Go season just finished, but the spinoff Kanan, same same kind of deal. It's just it's a lot of like blood hits, a lot of Mm, gunfights. Right. We do some period environment cleanup stuff. Um, Every once in a while, we'll use some effect stuff to simulate blood, you know, from someone getting shot in the neck or cut or something like that. So a lot of the work is more 2D compositing work now rather than 3D. Obviously, if we got a bigger show like Westworld or something with like dragons and characters, we would obviously scale up for more CG, but we're we're not doing a lot of that kind of work yet. Got Um, it. But yeah, as far as the shift, one of the biggest things for me was um, just like the length of time and how much time, the length of time and the, 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 the sharing and, and repetitive nature of the kind of work you're doing in episodic and TV, episodic specifically, but in film as well, Um, in commercials, we finish a commercial, there was maybe 50, 60% chance you would do something with those assets again, Mm -hmm. right? Most of the time, it was like a one-off commercial. Right. You archive it, you go back into it if you need it to pull some things out. Right. Um, In TV and film right now, we're doing... Power, ghost power which we have like three spin-offs that are coming down the pipe each season is about like 10 11 episodes um so i have to make sure that the assets and tools and things we create are procedural and they they're built in a way that we can continue to use them or else you're wasting time and money of everyone it would be so inefficient to finish all the work on one episode and then the very next episode, they want like something that's very similar to what you did in the first 7 You're like, oh, we yeah. archived it and put it away in like cold storage or something. You have right, to re- restore it to get it to it. Um, so that's one of the big things, like becoming much more procedural in the kind of work we do. And then one of the great benefits for me is I always felt in commercials, I, I wasn't always getting the amount of time I would have liked to spend with the agency or the production company in figuring out how to solve visual effects problems or problems, uh, within, uh, the, the commercial. Uh, and now with film and TV with, you know, we have like 10 12 day shooting schedules rather than one day for mm-hmm. commercial. Um, there's a lot more planning that goes into it. I get a lot more face-to-face time with the directors. I establish as relationships with, the DPs that are on the, for the whole season, you know, we establish like a workflow together. We, I know the production designer, I have their phone numbers. Whenever we jump into a new shot or a new scene that needs some visual effects help, we already have a rapport and a workflow. And I get much more time three or four meetings to figure out a thing rather than having to figure out almost on the day with. Commercials. Right. Um, so so you- there's, there's a lot more relaxing as far as, the stress of trying to solve stuff on the fly, you know?
0: Got it. So even as a vendor, vendor side, VFX supervisor, you hold kind of personal relationships with uh, the production designer and the director of photography and the
1: director. Yeah, I do. I, I usually, I think it might, it depends, I guess for the show that you're working on, but for our shows, um, we have good relationships with the, um, with the studios. And we also have good relationship with like the executive producers um, because we have like some, a lot of our series are series that we've worked on for six seasons or something four you know, three, four plus seasons. They bring on a lot of the same crew. Um, although the cinematographers have been on there every once in a while, a cinematographer will jump to another show, but Mm -hmm. guys that have been working for two or three seasons, I've worked with them on like seven or eight episodes. So we know each other at that point. Yeah. I get their info. I give all of production that I'm kind of directly more in contact, like the production designer, the assistant director, the director, the DP, I give them all my phone number. So if they have a question on set, if I can't be there, they can just give me a call and they're like, hey, we're doing like this screen comp in the middle of the night. Should we have it on? Should we put green screen? What should we do? And I can just answer the question on the phone, you know. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. That, that's that great. was that was a challenge that I faced when I did uh, I did uh, VFX supervisors a series at some point, and there you have um, because series are being shot. You know, obviously, an episode after an episode, the same DP goes. Uh, and shoots the whole season, but directors shift and sometimes one director is going to be prepping the next episode while different directors on set directing a current one. Um, I found it, I don't know how the DP does it. I mean, they, they the fact that they, you know, that they have to prep while shooting is crazy to me because even as a visual effects supervisor, I found myself kind of torn between wait a second, should I be in this prep meeting and figure out how to, uh, you know, kind of communicate what's going to happen in the next week or should yeah. I be on set shooting a scene that requires visual effects right now? And they could, you know, that could go wrong if yeah. I wasn't there. The um,
1: answer is both. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I know it's crazy. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, it's really, I mean, I, I was at the p- place where I was like, I, I took in the middle of the day, I would like run to the office, have a production meeting, then run back to set. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, hope that they didn't uh, mess things up. Usually they do. But uh, yeah.
1: you just like I think for me, but because because of my experience being in commercials, I just felt that kind of stuff was a little bit difficult. Like you said, yeah, There, one of the things I will say is there are a lot more meetings that I have to be at mm-hmm. a lot more than in commercials. You know, like you're saying, there's a prep meeting, there's a concept meeting, there's a VFX stunt meeting. Right. All that stuff is happening while I'm supposed to be on set for certain things. Um, I lean a lot on my producer and even my my production coordinator, um, and or my VFX coordinator, and they're fantastic. And I think when you're in a, I don't know what your situation was for that series, but like for me as a, on the vendor side, I have a fantastic producer that understands visual effects well enough that I trust them to jump into. Uh, prep call without me. And then just send me an email after with questions. Um, I have a coordinator that I trust to go through my script and go through the script if I didn't have a chance to look through something and make me aware of things that they feel like would be visual effects uh, worthy. And I think those things are very important. If you're trying to do a big show or you're scaling up in working on like a series, Because it's impossible for you to be everywhere at the same time. Right. And a lot of times I have to choose and decide what is the most important thing for me to be at right now and where do I add the most amount of value for the show? You know, are there things are there things that a lot of times I make decisions that are like, how badly can they fuck this up? (laughs) <laughs> if i i don't get to it you know like yeah how badly can you fuck up a screen comp exactly if i if, there, if there's a, a person that's getting shot in their face and their head has to blow up yeah i would take prioritizing the screen that comp over. can
0: wait can can be yeah, yeah worst case you'll manually exactly. track it or something yeah
1: exactly so um, so those are the kinds of ways i approach that and for me i've been able to do that because of my pedigree and commercial visual effects, you know, like being in a room and the client saying they need to do this now. And then my producer saying, we don't have this asset. And I'm like, fuck, which thing should I do right now? Choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. What will destroy the yeah. project? What will save it. So like making decisions like that, actually from my pedigree, I think commercials helped me be able to quickly like assess, make decisions. And I think that a lot of the times when you're more of a supervisor or your uh, lead a visual effects artist that's one of your strengths and skills that people don't get to work on very often you know having to make these stressful decisions that there is always going to be some kind of consequence but you have to assess which consequence is you know acceptable right um it's basically that, that is yeah
0: having having the big picture in mind every time you on know, and kind of being able to distance yourself from the task at hand at the moment and sort of look at the whole you know look at the at the context and being like well this is not the most important thing to be wasting my time on or or you know there's something way you know trying to i'm trying to uh put this fire out right now but there's like there's a uh a tsunami right behind it that I pr- yeah, probably exactly. be worried more about um yeah yeah and and you're also obviously supervising in studio so you're you're in charge of the uh yeah. of the artists that are behind you and when you mentioned um you know 20 to 25 artists uh, coming on board on a on a big commercial with a lot of uh, cg assets creatures destruction uh, yeah. all that stuff um I, I imagine in a commercial, it's more of a freelance type scenario where you bring on that workforce work when you need it. Uh,
1: it's not. Yeah, we, for sure. For the, for the commercial standpoint, if it was a really big commercial, we would scale up um, based off of the project. Uh, and we had usually a core team of like yeah. three compositors assigned to a commercial generally. Um, and we try to figure it out. And if we needed CG help, we would, you know, try to delegate CG artists accordingly and, to each project.
0: And is that something that right now, when you're in in TV and and kind of longer form VFX work, you have the 3D people on staff, kind of ready?
1: No, we don't. We don't have as many mm-hmm. CG artists in house as we would probably need. I think for us, it would be it would be a matter of anticipating if a big project was coming with a lot of CG. Yeah. We are, we have the capability to, to um, hire freelance CG artists. Yeah. Um, So that's not really a problem. Um, Yeah. And so we do that a lot of the times. Uh, And I think that that is something that, almost any company now has to be able to do I, I unless you're the depending on the volume of work that you have coming in I think most studios that are mid-size uh, mid to small size visual effects studios you have to be able to scale because that's just the nature of the industry right now I think you know unless you're like yeah see are in big feature films and you know you're going to have those people even those companies don't really step up that many they usually have these permalance freelancers that they that are from all over the world that come in for a project, you know. They, yeah, you're, you're like a hired gun kind of for those kinds of projects. Um, uh, yeah, and, and yeah, I find that our team right now we don't have as many um, CG artists. We have more compositors, uh, and we scale up depending on the project. I think our core, our core company, like the core staff right now, of the compositors, we probably have like seven or eight compositors. Okay. Um, we have the other fifty percent of our like compositors are like permalance mm-hmm. that we always kind of call. And they're usually mostly available, you know, for projects that we work on. And that's kind of just how it's been going. Um, and obviously if we had more, more, a lot more volume, we'd start thinking about hiring people, but because of the nature of episodic work in the city, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of how it goes. Um,
0: so and mostly. in the city, you mean, so most productions you're working on are shot are being shot in New York.
1: Yeah. Yep. So most of our production, uh, uh, I, yeah, almost everything I've worked on has been shot in New York. Some of the film stuff that I did early on, like Let Him Go, that was obviously not shot in New York, but that was like the studio visual effects supervisor. It was like studio side. It was like, hey, we have these this sequence that we want you guys to work on. Um, and they gave it to us, and we just finished it, you know?
0: Got it. Um, and I'm, um the other thing I wanted to ask about is um – the transition from commercial to film, was it basically moving from the company that you were at the time doing commercials to another company that had more film projects or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So part of the reason I decided to take that jump was just, I'd done commercials at that point for Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, six, seven years. And I, I I didn't feel like I was being challenged. I just like always wanted to move into like the episodic like Mm -hmm. TV film world Netflix was like really hot and, you know, all these streaming platforms were doing a great job.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the best, content. best content now. It's better than, yeah, than theatrical. Exactly. Yeah.
1: exactly. And so I was just like, man, I really want to get into TV and film industry and as a visual, in the visual effects sense. And so I, I started looking around seeing what studios were in the, in New York city um, and I applied to the first place I applied to was alchemy. It was one of the first, I think a friend recommended me. They said mm-hmm. they had good people I'm really about working with good culture, having a good culture at a company, because I think it's important for the work that you do and yeah. you know, the, the, the productivity and the growth of a company. Um, and yeah, I applied and, uh, you know, we had a few conversations about what, were expecting what they wanted out of me. I was upfront about the fact that I had done almost all commercials. Yeah, I had helped out on some episodic film stuff, and they they were just like, "Okay, yeah, we like your work. We like your your aesthetic." Um, uh, that was, I think, a lot of it. Like, I had very strong work from MPC that had like a very strong style and very grounded in photoreality. Mm-hmm. So that's like a lot of my work is like photoreal visual effects. Yeah, so they. Yeah, they liked it, and they liked me. They talked to some people around the city, probably to see if I was a psychopath or not. And <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah, okay, we'll take you." And so I came on. And the first one of the first jobs I worked on was that "Let Him Go" film, mm-hmm. um, where we did a bunch of we did a whole sequence where we were adding smoke and fire into a burning building. Okay. And I worked with the director. Um, he was great, fantastic first experience in you know like long form visual effects and then after that i slowly started push, pushing my way into um supervising all of the the stuff for the power universe and for ghost and Canaan. all of this stuff for the stars network um mm-hmm. and yeah and that's this and it's i've been doing it now for a year and we finished the first season of ghost in december and it did really well for the network and they got approved for three more seasons
0: wow that's great that's uh yeah so many more seasons at once that's pretty cool
1: i can work on this probably forever (laughs) great it's like their highest grossing show people really love it Um,
0: ghost i have to check it out i actually don't think i've seen it it out check
1: it out um Um, it's a drug dealing they do a lot of drug dealing and shooting and killing and yeah lots of people getting shot in the head stabbed you know all that kind of stuff
0: (laughs) fun sounds like uh like a lot of challenging shots and visual effects, and were you uh, intimidated to get into film, like from you know th- just the unknown and the fact that it's something that you know, there, it's, it's relatively different from commercial, like you mentioned. You know, the move yeah. from.
1: Uh, I was I was definitely intimidated. I think in the beginning, but I didn't really let it stop me because I, I knew we had hired freelance visual effects artists that had worked in episodic and film. Um, right. And I had had conversations with them about the work. I had seen their work. um, And I knew coming from MPC, the level, the quality level of the visual effects that we did was, in my mind, as good as any other studio, you know, in the world. Um, And so I wasn't intimidated whether or not I'd be able to hit the mark as far as like the quality of the work. I was uh, intimidated about understanding a lot of the episodic like lingo and understanding a lot of the, the, you know, like workflow from visual effects standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I, I tried to focus as much as I can on the work and the quality of the work. And I leaned on my producers that had much more experience in um, visual effects just for jargon and stuff. It's like, I'd be on calls and they'd be like, yeah, we're like shooting odds and evens. And I'd be like, Cool, sounds great. And then I jump to the side and be like, "What the fuck are they talking about? Shooting odds and And then my producer would tell me, I'd be like, "Oh, they're just shooting, you know, one direct, one one DP shooting all of the even episodes." And then I'd be like, "Okay, great, that's cool, got it." Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the thing I've been doing for the year, and um, and it's great for me because I love learning and. I'm a fast learner and I'm, I'm enjoying that part of the process because it got to the point where not saying it was nothing else I could learn in commercial visual effects, but it was nice to kind of change up and challenge myself a little bit in this kind of different aspect of it. And uh, yeah, it's been great.
0: And, uh, and also, I guess it brings me to ask you another question about the craft of storytelling is, is different and for, for long 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 form versus commercials like commercials you got you know maybe five visual effects shots each each of them is part of the of the story and that's the story you know you end up with like a story told in in five shots where, where, whereas in uh, in episodic sometimes you'll do you know you might work on one shot that is you know or five shots that are kind of minutes apart have you know are related to different uh story points uh but in general how do you um how do you kind of what is your uh, view on on the role of visual effects in storytelling and specifically in in long form storytelling as opposed to to yeah. short form
1: yeah i mean for me like i came i came from a film like uh, background-ish, you know, like I wanted to go into film. So I'd studied film for a long time. I love storytelling films um, and movies. And my approach early on was uh, for visual effects was trying to see if I can, I can imbue some kind of meaning into the, the visual effects work I was doing. My personal belief as a visual effects artist is that like the, the visual effects that you're doing is there to serve the story, you know, like you shouldn't be doing extra as far as like the goal of your visual effect without it, like helping the story. If, if you're doing so much that like the VFX is taking more center stage than the story and it doesn't need to, Mm -hmm. then I feel like there's a problem there. And so I always kind of approach it, I guess from a more of a, macro sense of like the story I would say that like in a commercial standpoint it feels like when you're doing visual effects storytelling um, it's also the nature of visual effects you got you had a sense where it was like it was an exercise you know almost like a film school exercise it's like you have four shots to be able to you know make make you feel some kind of emotion over this you know can of soda Mm -hmm. right Um, And you had to make sure that the visual effects was doing that. And I think whenever I think of visual effects, I I try to break it down by going like from the shot level, like what is the purpose of the visual effect I'm doing here for this shot? And then go into the macro level of like, how does this shot fit into the sequence and how did this sequence fit into the whole film?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And that's kind of my approach for it starting smaller because it's easier for me to kind of, focus on that. And then from that shot to the sequence, from the sequence to the whole film or the whole commercial. And that's kind of how I've approached it. And it's worked out well for me. You know, I think it makes it much easier to be like, Oh, like, you know, does, does this flame have to be that big? Is it real? Does it make any sense for that? And I do that to a level where even when we're, we're doing stuff where it's a muzzle flash for a gun, right? I expect my artists to be able to communicate some kind of, you know, intent on why they chose that muzzle flash. Right. What's the story behind the muzzle flash. Does it fit for the gun? Mm-hmm. And if you're exaggerating it, why are you exaggerating it? Is mm-hmm. it, is it, are you exaggerating it because it's helping tell some, some kind of story that's happening in the sequence? Like if, if it's a sequence, like I do that a lot, where if it's a shot where a hero character is being killed in a film and you want to do some muzzle flash and interactive lighting and you want to see like more interactive lighting, light the person's face up because you want to make it more dramatic. Yeah. As long as you can explain that to me, I'll, I'll, I'll back you up because I have to be able to tell the, you know, the director and the EPs on my side, that this is the reason I made this decision. If you can't explain the reason you made the choice, then, you know, I, I'm not going to allow you to just do it. I'll just force you to do, well, I won't force you, but you have to be able to, it's like a, you have to be able to explain the intent behind why you're doing that. And I I expect myself to be able to explain the intent behind why I'm making choices as a visual effects artist. And my guiding compass is always back to the story. And that's how kind of I work with my artists. And I try to say like, I can, uh, there, there is no like leader, As far as the visual effect in my shows you know if i am working on a shot or a sequence and i i have a dumb idea for why i'm doing something and someone's like that doesn't make any sense this makes way more sense i'd be like yo you're right todd Mm -hmm. that's that's what we should do you know because it makes it much easier to lead and supervise because i'm not the I'm not the final say the script and the story is the final say right and if everybody agrees that that is much better for the story then I gotta shut up
0: yeah I, th- I think it's interesting the um, uh, the difference because a, a lot of times you know in, in a, when you do a commercial the product is the story I mean it's not as simple as that but but a lot of times like your your guide is going to be let's make the product look good uh or let's let's make the the commercial needs to kind of represent a company represent the brand you know kind of yeah. c- the emotion that you're trying to get from the commercial a lot of times is uh you know impress the audience whereas yeah. uh and, and that's something that
1: yeah that's go for it.
0: that's something that for us artists is is kind of an uh a lot of artists spend a lot of time and a lot of energy figuring out how to make things look pretty uh, cool um impressive. Um and then you get to the to the narrative and, and a lot of times you know you'll make a visual effects shot it's gonna look ugly or not I mean not the visual effects itself but the shot is gonna look ugly and you're gonna have to kind of struggle with yourself because your instinct is you know to make it look better but the story calls for it to look ugly. Exactly I mean and you're yeah and and, and I think that's an, an interesting distinction that probably you probably You know, especially when you're doing uh, series that are gritty about these kind of, you know, heavy uh, subjects that are real, that are important, that are, you know, uh, real world products.
1: That's part of the reason I wanted to move more into film and TV is because like in episodic visual effects, like uh, I'm sorry, in commercial visual effects, not everything you're going to work on is going to be like this incredible award-winning thing or even have a story or a meaning right and and i kind of found myself working on a lot of those kinds of jobs and being like man i just there's no soul or spark or anything behind this It's just really really this is just a thing to just sell something and i would try really hard to force meaning into things that are really inconsequential narrative or inconsequential exercise in selling stuff to people. Right. Um, and so, you know, how much story can you add into like a, I don't know, heartburn commercial, (laughs) right? Like you can try. And sometimes it can get a little bit of a reaction out of people if you craft it well, but I just felt like what was at the core of it wasn't as, you know, as meaningful as I would have felt if it was like a film or a TV. And so that's kind of why I shifted more into that space
0: right and i mean that's that's uh that's something that i think a lot of artists are are struggling to at some point in their life and, and you know and, and people in all all uh all professions but uh but we we just as much is like um finding a, a higher purpose for everything and like you know and with everything that's going on in the world right now all the real world problems and challenges and and yeah. uh issues it's like how can you make a difference you know i mean we all know people like elon musk's who who uh you know feels like humanity needs to be multiplanetary, and then goes and creates a a space uh, space companies to make that into a reality um yeah. and i think i definitely uh kind of hit my head and against the wall a lot of times thinking you know what what is the best usage of my time how can i make how can i make a real difference in this in this world doing what i like to do which is you know this and storytelling and stuff but but at the same time also making sure that it it serves a a higher purpose and i think that's
1: uh i think that's that's a very big existential life question Mm -hmm. that everyone kind of faces at some point and um as a Artists especially, I think, if you feel like you are an artist, you have this, I think, calling and need to want to create something that can have some kind of meaning or change the world or make the world a little bit better place or even just express human emotion. You know, there are a lot of reasons I think people create art and want to work on art. Um, And like you said, yeah, you always eventually get to a point where you feel like you want to make something. That has some kind of higher purpose or meaning or helps or influence people in a certain way uh, or just makes people think a little differently. I think good art doesn't have to be something that, you know, always changes the world, but it should bring some kind of new perspective to the person that's looking at it. Shift the way of thinking in some kind of way.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's really beautiful about TV and where it's been heading in the last few years. Not only that they do that quality storytelling now more than ever, uh, but it's also that they're choosing, they're they're shifting perspect their perspective on on uh, on storytelling, and and they're really uh, trying to to touch upon subjects that are current and and are important. I mean, I really like. Yeah. Uh, I actually haven't seen uh, Ghosts or Power, but I, I think, uh, you know, I, I loved Breaking Bad and uh, and The Wire and and uh, more recently... Yeah, yeah. More recently... Uh, um, Ozark? No, Lovecraft, is that in Love, Lovecraft? Oh, yeah, Lovecraft,
1: ca- ca- I've seen County? that, yeah. uh,
0: Which is full of visual effects and it's really high concept and cool, but I, I, I really, I mean, I don't know, I, I might be looking at it from a very kind of narrow... Uh, privileged, uh, point of view, but, yeah, um, yeah, sure. but the idea of like, you know, taking this sort of, uh, taking the genre, the, the fantastic, you know, fantasy and, and horror and all yeah. that, those genres and, and, uh, doing what, uh, what, uh, um, sorry, I'm blanking. I, I actually, um, HBO? No, uh, the creator, uh, um, one of the producers. Oh,
1: I, don't I don't even know who the creator and is. Jordan
0: Peele, I think, is at least one is, of is them. Is he
1: a creator for it? I thought he was like a like a.
0: Produ- yeah, he's like probably a, an executive producer, but I think producer, yeah. I actually I think I, I know that he's he brought the project to the creator. The creator is also a a black uh, female showrunner, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, cool. Um, but I think Jordan Peele was the one that kind of gave her the book and and was like this is I want to do this and she was like really they're going to do this on TV and you know that um and uh He's
1: like Jordan you got to slow down man you keep trying to put black people everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Relax.
0: But I mean I I loved what he did with Get Out and then and then when I found out yeah. he was in, he was involved with uh with uh, Lovecraft County I was like oh of course I mean it's uh this is the yeah. this is his trademark now in mean, his uh well, I mean,
1: it's just so funny that he's like his whole kind of thing right now is just let me just figure out a way to make these genres diverse. Yeah. Because for a long time long time these there were you didn't even just see any lead characters yeah. in these genres. Like so he's like, Let me make a mainstream fantasy film with more diversity and people are like whoa that's such a crazy idea how'd you think of that <laughs> right no it's I like mean, oh it's... what black people like fantasy stories like that's crazy
0: i know but that um, i mean but but what i like about his work i mean a lot of and, and that's one thing that i kind of uh uh that that i find a this being a distinction between jordan's work i mean and other people in you know who are like him in this field versus uh versus other types of of project that are now seeing a lot more diversity for the sake of diversity I think his mm-hmm. his, uh, his uh, uh, approach to it is is or, or he kind of uh, symbolizes at least to me a more uh, kind of almost I wouldn't call it militant but a more um, argumentative approach which is like it's not just I'm not just gonna populate this sci-fi world with more diverse castes. I'm going to tell a story that speaks to me and, and people who look like me and who have my background. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like, he's, he's like, Oh, I'm a black person. I'm telling a black story and I'm talking to a black audience. Right. So he has a lot of things in there that are cultural black cultural things that if you didn't come from a, as a black person, you wouldn't appreciate it as much right. or you might not understand. But once you learn it and you understand it, you become part of that culture by yeah. learning it, you know, from the show, which I think is really interesting for other audience members. Um, and the question that always comes up when you have storytellers like Jordan Peel or people that gain some kind of notoriety and decide that, oh, well, I have some kind of mainstream, like, power now and i can create stories that i want to hear about people like me people always say oh are you ever i heard a question people were like oh jordan are you ever going to make a film with a white lead character and he was like i mean why like why like why would i make a film with a white lead character he said his 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 thing was that i've seen all those movies already right why is it like it's that why (laughs) because it's like the 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 question the person should have asked themselves is like, if it's not a if it's a black lead character, are you asking for a white lead character because you're saying what he's making is not mainstream? Right. Right. Because the lead character is black. So he's like, well, are you gonna go back to making some mainstream stuff with white lead characters? It's like, why are you always doing this fringe black stuff? It's like, no, it's just a story that's different than the one that you're used to hearing yeah. or seeing. And the story is interesting because the character is black. So why would I imagine watching Get Out with a White Guy as the leader? Yeah, like exactly. Just,
0: yeah. It's, it's not
1: interesting at all. You'd be like, oh, some white guy went to get <laughs> Out with his white girlfriend, and it doesn't it wouldn't work at all. No, the reason that's, his films work is because he's giving a different perspective, right? And I think some people want to call it like fringe. And they're like, oh, are you ever going to what that what that what that guy wanted to know, really asking that question is, are you going to make a cool uh, another amazing story for white people?
0: Right. Are you going to make something for all of us or just are you going to
1: make something because your your black stories are super cool? White people want some of your cool black stories. But what he's missing is that the story isn't cool because. You know, like it's a white character, a black character, whatever. It's cool because he's telling an authentic yeah. experience and perspective that happens to have black cultural center around it. Yeah, Jordan Peele could not make a great white story because he's not white. Exactly. You know, there are some there are some stories that are neutral as far as what their character, what their culturally, you know, significance is. But what's interesting about his films is that he is touching on this cultural culture that like has for a long time not been mainstream so we're learning a lot of things about the culture and you're hearing these jokes that are kind of like oh that's so funny i haven't thought of it that way yeah i haven't experienced that in that way you know
0: i think also so that yeah. i think i think what you're talking about it like terms of mainstream and, and having a white star is like uh, a lot of times the white person in that you know main role is sort of like supposed to replace the concept of an everyday man right? Yes, like, exactly. Like, um, the story of, I mean, back to the future, it doesn't have to be white people, but he, you know, Marty uh, McFly represents the average teen and teenager who's exactly. like sucked into this yeah. thing, which is, first of all, funnily enough, like, you know, we go a few years in the future, white is going not going to be the average person anymore. I, I'm not even sure it's, it is now anymore, but, um, Uh, but definitely, you know, for audience members who want to see themselves, you want to, you know, white is not necessarily it. Um, And 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 people,
1: it's funny because, yeah, it's like, and for a long time, I think Hollywood um, and mainstream, like Hollywood uh, gatekeepers have not, they have not um, banked on a lot of those stories because, or invested in those stories because they just felt like they wouldn't be profitable because profit is what you know, runs Hollywood and, you know, some of it is biased because risk is not, for all Hollywood is as a industry, it's not a very risky, they're very risk averse. Yeah. You know, they want to tell stories that they can guarantee to make money. If you want to know the industry that is like very risk averse, look at Hollywood. How many Fast and Furious have these guys made? They'll just keep making them forever. It's funny. Until they they run out of uh, like numbers. They're going to use every number (laughs) that they can, you know, fast and furious 37. um, I know, but profitable and they know it and it's, they know it's not risky and they can make money from it.
0: Yeah. And and I think an interesting signal of, of change is from the fact that Netflix places like Netflix uh, are very uh, commonly buy concepts from other places in the world. Like I know Mm -hmm. when I, when I moved to LA, which was about 10 years ago or even more, um, I actually had a conversation with, uh, the person who was, uh, uh, one of my film teachers, uh, back in Israel in Jerusalem. And, uh, he said, you're, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, don't, don't keep him past it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, don't, uh, uh, he said, uh, your your decision to move into Los Angeles and making, you know, Hollywood films, you're not going to be able to make the same films that you can do here. That that was kind of one of his arguments yeah. against moving. Not that he was trying to keep me from going. It was basically saying, you know, you just kind of come to terms with the fact that you're not going to be able to tell the same stories over there as you can here. Um, mm. And in um, Cut Forward, 10 years later, you see companies like Netflix buying uh, uh, buying multiple um show concepts and uh, and things like they're that buying showrunners they're buying buying showrunner studios
1: scripts, yeah. writers, directors, they want diverse content yeah,
0: from all of the world
1: I mean I think the great thing about Netflix is that for the visual fe- sorry, not for the visual effects company there for the storytelling and I would call them you know like studio that they are they they are an analytical company and they have numbers that not all of us are privy to as far as what people are watching, mm-hmm. and if they see that they uh, they they have members, but they also I think they work as a tech company, right? And so a lot of that is testing things out, and for them their test isn't deploying a piece of software; it's deploying like, a, you know, a mini series of a film or a TV show and seeing how well that does. If it does well, they get good numbers from it. They're like, okay, we can make this a full thing. Yeah. And this is something I don't think Hollywood has really been able to do. I mean, they've done it with a pilot episode of a show, but really how much, you know, how much information are you getting if one pilot episode doesn't get approved? Yeah. Um, because of it was it was played on, like, ABC at some random time. Um, and I think Netflix is interesting because it has been disrupting for a long time, and now people are realizing, oh, shit, the, like, this diverse storytelling thing is actually profitable. You know, even in the superhero genre, they made Black Panther, and they're like, oh, shit, we can make money off of black superheroes? It's crazy. Um, I think part of that is the, you know, the distribution of films now is so different. Um, So the access from people all around the world is much different. And also globally, I think we've become much more of a global culture. Um, There's kind of been this like melding of culture because of the internet. Right. Like Black Panther can do much better because there is kind of like a global culture that can have an understanding of it and that's been a lot of the limits of uh, films that are international um, look at uh parasite it won yeah. everything in america hollywood right and that's that's a foreign film that was the first time a foreign film had done so well and i think part of that is because we're as as consumers of stories and films we are becoming a much more global culture
0: oh yeah you know totally yeah and we're watching shows like narcos and uh yeah, was it uh, the Crown, which is British, but obviously yeah. still foreign? And I heard this, that, yeah. this
1: show, Heist, Money Heist, I think is what it's called. It's like a South American, like thriller crime show. Like all these, yeah, it's, we've become global storytelling consumers. Yeah. I think it's only great. It's only better for you know storytelling, and I think it's it's only going to get better for you know representation of people in the world Um, yeah
0: and you mentioned uh that netflix is also kind of bringing uh ushering a change in the visual effects industry
1: yeah Um, yeah i think um netflix for me i think uh, is a very interesting company as far as their mindset in disruption right and i think when you have a company that has this kind of disruptive visual effects mindset or industry mindset um i I have I have over the last couple of years, from a visual effects standpoint, noticed the ability, or not even the ability, the 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 need from from Netflix to try to become its own kind of like all in house creator. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think uh, that stood out to me that I kind of noticed was how Netflix has basically opened their own animation studio.
0: Right. Um,
1: They do a lot of their own in-house animation. They did a lot of work recruiting and hiring people from Disney, people from Pixar, you know, all of these big that we would think of traditional, you know, tent poles of animation in uh, in Hollywood and in California. Um, And they're also working with places internationally to do stuff like create anime series. Like Netflix is like, when was the last time you would have thought like an American like studio would be creating anime in America? You know, Um, and part of that is creating and using their resources to create their own talent pool of visual effects artists and visual and not only visual effects artists, visual effects supervisors and also animation uh, studios. And what I think has been really cool about it and interesting is... um, that the quality level that they are trying to hold themselves up to is yeah. so outstanding because I think they're trying to do things like future proof themselves. Right. I think that's just kind of like a forward thinking thing. And one of the things that came out, I was an article, I think I can see if I can find it. It was an article in July of this year that um, Netflix, I can send you the article, but Netflix is going to be creating uh, its own, they are calling it Net Effects Platform, okay? Uh, where where they're going to create basically their own visual effects uh, remote workstations that they can spin up huh. for visual effects artists for jobs that they'll be working on. So let's say they have a show that is uh, I don't know that I my studio is working on, right? Yeah. and I need. 30 visual effects artists, but I don't have the workstations for 30 visual effects artists. They'll spin up 15 of those remote work for workstations. And we can use those uh, as uh, visual effects workstations rented to us by Netflix to wow. help subsidize or create the visual effects for the film. Hmm. I could imagine it in a world where this gets to the point where they, you know, might end up finding enough in-house VFX supervisors where they can just spin up these machines for freelancers all over the world to coordinate and come up with a pipeline. Now I'm not saying it's like some grand conspiracy where they're gonna like take down every visual right. effects studio and hire their own people, but I feel like it's a very interesting challenge for the visual effects industry to see that Netflix is moving into this kind of territory on their own and being like, you know, we're just going to create our own cloud visual effects, uh, workflow and our own cloud visual effects pipeline that we can hire visual effects artists, especially for shows like even mine, where they would just be like, yeah, we just need someone to help do period cleanup. Right. Not as creative for like 17 shots. Let's just spin up our own workstations, workflow pipeline. They can, We'll we'll cloud drop them the footage. They can work on it on our secure machines. We don't have to worry about anything and then upload it back to us and we can drop it in and finish the episode. Right. You know, instead of trying to find a studio to bid on it and do this, I think it, it might be a little bit of a way for them to get some of this more this less creative visual effects work in the beginning done without having to go through the whole process of bidding and finding a, you know, a a a vendor that can do it. Um, It might, which for me, I think it's a double-edged sword because it'll be great sometimes probably for um, VFX artists as individuals because you then become, you're able to have your career and your livelihood more in your hands rather than anyone else.
0: It's a democratization of like visual effects uh, uh, creatives and and artists because they, they, they don't have to be kind of uh, incorporated onto one company, for instance, or like, you know, um, yeah. or, or tied to one company, even though it's like, it's a trend that goes, that seems to be expanding, that people are no longer tied to a single company and they are more yeah. free to roam around and stuff. But I mean, I it's funny, it reminds me of this uh, instance that I've had where I was like, uh, I was bidding for this job uh in a commercial in the commercial world but but i was looking for uh some artists and i and i basically reached out to these artists that i've known uh that i thought would be perfect for this job and uh put together a budget based on their availability and their uh and and their skills and um ended up not getting the job but the studio that did get the job turned out to be working with the same artists uh and my my Guess is that they actually bid higher than me uh, because they have way more overhead than I did. Um, yeah. But uh, maybe because my maybe because the company was not sure that I would be able to handle the same capacity as they could because exactly. they're a bigger studio, they chose to yeah. go you know to to go the safe route and pay more money for a studio that does have that they do think has Which the ca- capacity and infrastructure. Yeah. And then the job ended up taking place in the same exact place it would have through me and they basically you know could have um so that might be also something that netflix would be able to do is like you know to kind of get rid of some of the overhead and uh and go directly to the no, town sure i 100 um,
1: feel like that is part of the goal of something like that um and i think in the same way that you know they disrupted they're disrupting the studio system right now in hollywood by just in studio and TV by hiring showrunners themselves, yeah. By doing contracts <clears> with the writers, directors, right? I wouldn't. I would imagine that they would find some super talented VFX artists or you know supervisors and try to see if they can establish some kinds of relationships with them to take on visual effects and manage visual effects for them internally. You know. Yeah,
0: I, I have friends yeah. who, who are, who are sitting at a at an office here in uh, Los Angeles, have their own little visual effects boutique house. And, uh, they're in somewhere in like a studio in, in, uh, in Hollywood. And the whole building was like gradually kind of, uh, taken over by another, you know, by Netflix, another piece of the building was taken over by Netflix, another piece. And it turns out that now they're like the last holdout, the one company, like inside this big, massive (laughs) building, the one company that still is not Netflix. Um,
1: but yeah, for sure.
0: Hold on, uh, Mike. <laughs> I, have a, yeah, yeah, no I have a visitor.
1: Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: He's very really barged. <laughs> oh, yes,
0: this is Doran. He wants to take part. Who's that? Say hi. This is Bilali. <laughs> Say hi. He's like, he yeah, sees himself yeah. on the screen. and <laughs> <doing> take <this. laughs> <laughs> He's me, he misses cute. his dad. We've been taking too much
1: time. I know. Maybe we should be wrapping up soon. Yeah. He's like, All right, can we finish this visual effects talk? He's
0: like, Okay, that's enough. It's dinner time. It's I'm He's so quiet. He's entranced. <laughs> <Don't believe> okay. <laughs> <Bobo> <laughs> What's the <laughs> there you go. Oh. And, yeah. Yeah. Soon, <laughs> soon he's going to start uh, doing podcasts himself. And,
1: uh, yeah, you're teaching him visual effects. <laughs> yeah. Get the pen in his hand early.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I wanted to, lastly, I wanted to talk to you about your, your own podcast, um, yeah. which, I mean, I know I started this podcast as part of my... Way of uh, both meeting interesting people and having the conversations, and and having sort of archive and uh, being able to go back and, and uh, relive this uh, these moments, but also sharing my passion with others and uh, and uh, spreading the spreading the love, and a byproduct of that is also, you know, uh, um, branding myself as as someone who's not just uh, does visual effects but also talks about visual effects, loves visual effects, and and, uh, mm. and likes to educate. So I'm curious what what is your podcast uh, and and what yeah. uh, what purpose does it serve for you?
1: Yeah, so my so my podcast is called Legends of VFX um and it's a visual effects podcast. Um we're dropping an episode about once a month um, and the the whole purpose of it was for me, I mean I started it during COVID um and it was part like side project to keep me busy but also Um, With everything moving remote for visual effects, I just had a a feeling that it it would become more and more important for visual effects artists to try to dispel some myths and also to try to um, create understanding about the kind of work that we do and its importance in storytelling right now, specifically. Yeah, Um, I felt like a lot of the work that was coming out whether invisible or visible had majority of a lot, a lot of visual effects. I only saw that growing, mm-hmm. but I also felt like even to this day, people have a lot of misconceptions and understanding uh, what goes into the visual effects that go, that we see on these TV shows and these films. Um, and so I was kind of trying to do it as like a, a show, like probably similar to you to talk to interesting visual effects, people that I know, but also to help, Dispel some of these myths and misconceptions about visual effects industry and visual effects artists.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've interviewed uh, visual effects. Now, I think for me is like it's it started to meld a little bit, but like the idea was to have conversations with not only visual effects artists, but to have conversations with people that interact with the visual effects industry. So I've interviewed. Um, directors. I've interviewed motion design artists that I've worked with before. I've interviewed clients because I always feel like that's one of the things people don't really talk to or talk about is your relationship with your clients as a visual effects artist. Um, And, and I'm hoping to continue it. We had a whole thing when uh, all of the black lives matter stuff was going on, where we talked about diversity in visual effects industry Mm -hmm. Um, and diversity of visual effects storytelling. We talked about Black Panther and things like that, and what they mean to, you know, like young kids that see themselves as superheroes now in these visual effects films. Um, and yeah, it's it's been going great, and we're we're hoping to do a lot more cool content. I want to try to. My whole thing is to try to empower visual effects and visual effects artists mm-hmm. um, to know that they have they are awesome storytellers like crazy cool people. And if people knew the kind of work that they were producing, they would really, you know, appreciate those pixels that they're seeing on the screen. Um, And so, and so, yeah, that's it. You can, we we're everywhere right now. We're on, you know, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple podcasts, um, anywhere you can find just, type in legends of VFX and you should be able to find us. Um, Yeah.
0: Legends of VFX. Definitely check it out. And where, where are other places people can, can find you and your work? Do you have a website? Yeah.
1: So, so right now, um, uh, you can check if you just go to Mm balalimac.com, you'll see a bunch of my work. Um, you will see upcoming projects and films that I'm working on. Um, I don't have like a blog or anything, but, uh, I think I, for me, it's kind of like my podcast is like my audio blog. Um, and, and yeah, that's where you can find me. You can find me on LinkedIn and my email and contact information is on com as well. Um, I can send you that stuff as well if you'd like.
0: Sure. No, I'll, I'll put it in on the, uh, podcast website. I don't know if people who are listening to it or watching it actually go and check the website, but it it it's worth <laughs> doing because it's got a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff in it. Any any person show who wants notes. to have show, show notes, notes especially in our field, I mean, I think it's so important to to have an idea like a visual in your head to um, to kind of keep in mind when you're when you're when we're talking about our craft because it's so visual. I mean, it's literally what we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious beyond. Uh, beyond your personal interest in that subject and uh, the things that the podcast forms, um, what made you think, first of all, choose the podcast format itself and also just uh, is there a, um, a part like I, you know, I mentioned kind of uh, as a side by, byproduct, it's like it's a way to build a personal brand. Um, mm, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, I think that's part of the empowerment part as an artist, mm-hmm. right? I think as an artist you, you get to a point where like if you're a good artist people are going to come to you for your brand and the kind of work you do right And so the podcast helps serve as uh, a way of people getting to know me and my personality and what i care about um, and that's a good way to self select uh if you want to work with me or if you have same values on like storytelling you know maybe it's not a good fit if you want to work on a project together. Um, and the podcast, you know, I, I feel like visual effects for all the technology that we use and all of the innovation that happens as far as an um, in industry and like marketing ourselves and putting ourselves out there, we're like almost further behind than like plumbers and electricians. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that many visual effects artists that, are really good at selling themselves as a brand and, you know, establishing themselves and putting content out. You have to like basically break a a visual effects artists arm to get them to do like some breakdowns to show the work that they do. And it's very important to do that stuff as an artist. Yeah. um, Because as a visual effects artist, you're also, you know, your brand is your equity, you know, people will come to you. Like I said before, in the commercial space, you want to get to the point where your work is so good and great that people are coming looking for you to want to work with David.
0: Yeah, that stayed with me, the fact that you said, you know, you've had clients who, as a a flame artist and and as a a client-facing kind of uh, person running the room, like you mentioned, you know, having that privilege of having clients kind of come to you. I also had a conversation recently with a company, um about about work as a visual effects supervisor and and they in this set, it's it's very common now that supervisors come with clients like they bring not only do they yeah. you know do they do they uh, you know bring offer their services and get paid for the services that they that they introduce, you know bring on board but they also bring value in the in the in the form of an of an existing client that that yeah. they're bringing on board moment. with them yeah
1: Yeah, everybody now. I think you're going to need to have a a little bit of a following if you want to be paid for the value, right? If you're like, yeah, I want to be a valuable artist, and I want my company to treat me that with compensation and with respect, and you know, and think of me more of a collaborator rather than just like a button pusher. Right? You have to bring that value by like having a following and establishing yourself with things like creating podcasts, showing the work that you've done, you know, putting blogs out there, um, doing panels. I do a lot of panel talks. Um, I like work with Autodesk a lot because I've used the software for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I set up a panel talk for them where we did uh, talk about, you know, storytelling and visual effects. We actually did that. Um, and uh, all that kind of stuff is really important for artists to be doing, get involved in your industry and community and, for me, one of my things is for visual effects industry is I hope that we get enough leverage at some point to realize how important the work we do is, you know? Think yeah. of Avengers and all these films that are out there that they're making billions of dollars on. Visual effects studios closing left and right, right while these films it's... are making billions and billions of dollars. I think we're probably, we see ourselves so much as artists that we don't, we don't, we haven't, we haven't worked to try to establish the equity part and like what we deserve as an industry. Um, we don't even have a union. You right. Know? We don't have anything to protect ourselves. And all of the most, I think if you look at a list that probably the 20 highest earning films in the last 50 years or something, probably the top 10 are all heavy, like 80% visual effects film. Right. Every Avengers Marvel film, how could they do any of that stuff without visual effects? They couldn't. But visual effects probably get stiffed, like on the bill at the end of the day, uh, for value and for compensation, probably worse than any other, um, industry as far as, as far as I'm concerned, I read an article the other day about visual effects artists committed suicide.
0: Right. And that was a big story.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the mill or something film. Mm-hmm. um and they killed themselves because it was such a terrible work condition was it
0: an artist yeah. or a producer i think it was a vfx producer was it a
1: producer i think it was a producer or artist yeah. whatever somebody in our industry you know like mm-hmm. how many people from netflix do you think are jumping out of buildings from the jobs that they're working on you know they they have a lot of leverage right. and they're they're capturing their value and a lot of them they're they're they 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 have a great way of capturing their value and they've established themselves but that's because i think netflix has kind of they got into the film and film business as a tech company, Yeah, you know, and tech has leverage as far as an industry. So they're, they're really a film, a studio, but they're going about it as a tech. And so for me, I think part of the podcast and all this work I'm trying to do for visual effects industry is like trying to figure out how we can shift our mindset as storytellers rather than just, uh, you know, just like people that are just work hands that are there just producing stuff, you know, a good, a great visual effects supervisor should be just as good as an incredible director. Right. You know, totally. You should. And, but look at, look at in our industry, what is the value of a great director versus a visual effects supervisor? You know, Uh, until those are kind of more equal in my mind, as far as, uh, specific on the kind of film you're doing, mm-hmm. but like, I think a a great visual effects supervisor for uh for a film like Avengers might be more important than the director as, in certain instances. Yeah, you know. Um, but
0: well, being a director, I mean, I, I as 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 having been one for for at least one pe- yeah. for one feature, I can say, uh, and and worked with with a bunch of them. It's a very uh, elusive elusive like job description and different directors yeah. do different things and it's almost like this is uh, you know you're more you're the medium versus you know you're more the medium yeah, exactly. that connects all the things versus a thing itself in itself like, like
1: a composer more like a or yeah you know yeah.
0: exactly and some directors care about certain things and they're all about those things and they completely kind of let other people take over whatever they're not interested in uh yeah.
1: Well, yeah i think uh, not to just like overstep or anything as a visual effects supervisor but you know i just feel like the value is a little lower for for the kind of work
0: that you what, yeah
1: what is making what is making the most money and i don't oh, want to yeah. sound like i'm like oh i'm like some angry vfx supervisor person is just i just i've seen it and i've worked in it for a long time and shifting from you know, seeing people get taken advantage for a long time, and knowing when you actually have value, and seeing how the bottom rung of visual effects artists get taken advantage of, and they don't have leverage to be able to negotiate—it just, it, yeah. I, I, and knowing how much money is being made, right, is what makes me frustrated. And so, you know, I think obviously the director is like the CEO of a film of course, but yeah. you know, you, you need that CFO, you need all those guys to be just as important. And when, when the company is uh, Salesforce is a marketing company, you know, mm-hmm. you have a CEO, but no one would say that, Oh, the, the value of marketing at a company like Salesforce is not that important. Right. You know, of course, because it's a marketing company. So mm-hmm. if you have, if you're making a visual effects company, why would you like not value the visual effects as much <laughs>
0: yeah and i think yeah i mean that's that's a change that needs to happen for sure
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: that might be well i mean we'll see that the whole like uh union thing and uh and uh yeah
1: i don't know i think we might have missed the boat on the union thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless people are re- really ready to put a lot on the line you, you're right. going to have a hard you're going to be hard pressed to get people to like put their livelihood on stuff on the line and get blacklisted because you need every you literally would need everybody to get together and it's starting yeah. I know they are, there are some small visual effects unions that are being established and I think it might work a little bit like the way it's happened in the animation world where if you are a big visual effects studio doing a lot of volume you unionize company to company right. I don't know if you're going to have like a whole you'll have local unions for the the industry you know like LA probably will have its own local visual effects union is New York it own a local visual effects union you know and I think that's probably the way to approach it but people have to be able to willing to put something on the line and for the greater good you know
0: yeah, so, and, yeah. and I think when you when you talk about missing the boat it seems like because the trend is going towards visual effects as a gig economy versus a centralized yeah. uh, studio based. Exactly then because you want
1: to have leverage before you wanted to start unionizing when you're making jurassic park
0: right exactly
1: that's the time to unionize nobody like can do it you've got all the control if they want the fucking dinosaurs they have to work and do what you need to do to get quality work and take care of your employees yeah that's the time to unionize you know after there's kids at home downloading After Effects and creating dinosaurs on their phones that's not the time to unionize (laughs) you missed it
0: I know well I mean there's a ton more that I would want to talk about you and I had a pleasure you know an absolute pleasure pleasure having this conversation this long conversation that we had Uh, but a good reason for it because there's just so much to talk about Um, man definitely I definitely have more questions but uh, I want (laughs) to I want to give you your uh, rest of your evening and uh, and yeah, man. have my wife uh, hate me a bit less. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for for taking the time. And uh, I yeah, hope man. that we hope we do a follow up at some point because there's plenty more to to discuss. But
1: uh, sure, man, this was great. It's been a pleasure. I, I, this was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. And that was episode 31 of the Post Post Podcast with Bilali Mack. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to leave a note, share it with your friends, um, or just keep enjoying it. And until next time, stay inspired.